0: That's great, and I look forward to hearing more about all that they did over there and all that God did through them and in them. You know, you think to fly people from here who... Most of them are somewhat out of shape when it comes to manual labor and have them digging ditches and moving rocks and laying concrete. And over there, they don't have big concrete mixing trucks where they just hose it into the site. It's all, everything's moved by hand. And you think, what a waste. You know, you could get somebody for $5 a day who's strong over there who can do this work. But it makes such a statement to people, the missionaries and to the people there, to see someone come from halfway around the world because they love you and then they work alongside you and help you and it means so much more than just the work that you accomplish and so I encourage any of you to pray about taking a short-term missions trip at some point just to share the love of God in that way and also, as Sean said, to, to keep in contact with our missionaries even if you don't know them or haven't met them. We have out on that front wall along the outside wall towards the store out there in the corridor by the bathrooms, Um, little cards with all the missionaries, information on them, and and pictures of them, and so you can get their addresses and their email addresses, and it means a lot to them if you reach out to them and let them know that you're thinking of them and praying for them, and so I just want to encourage you in that. This week, um, normally we're going through the Bible on Wednesday night and we're in the book of Psalms. This week I'm going to be gone um, because there's a... I'm speaking for a national police officers conference up at Mount Hermon up in Santa Cruz and so... um, I won't be here. Pastor Ken will be speaking this Wednesday night. I would encourage you to come. He emceed the Valentine's banquet the other night and was in rare form. And uh, so I know that you can expect a lot of corny jokes, but also you can expect to really be blessed by the Lord, as Kenny shares. So I encourage you to come out on uh, Wednesday night for that. But turn now in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. We've started a few weeks ago an in-depth study on on Sunday mornings of the book of Galatians, and it's a great book. I'm enjoying, as we get into it, as the Apostle Paul writing to these churches in the area of Galatia, sharing with them a danger that was happening to them. They were Gentiles. They didn't know much about Judaism, and when Paul came on his first missionary journey and shared the good news of the gospel with them, they accepted it. Happily and readily, they were so excited to find out that their sins could be forgiven. And it was especially good news to them that they didn't have to do anything to get to God, but that God had done something to get to them. And so, this gospel of grace was received so gratefully by them. But some people came along behind Paul and tried to convince these people that really it's not just grace, it's also the law. You also need to become Jewish and observe the standards and the ceremonies and everything of the law, and basically created this twisting and perverting of the gospel, as he calls it, that it's not just what God did for you, but it's what you need to do for him that matters. Paul was really upset about it, and as we've seen over the last several weeks, he says if you add to the gospel, it's no longer good news at all. It's not the gospel. Paul emphasized to these people, hey, this isn't some man-made religion. In fact, as we saw last week, it's not even according to man. No man would even make up something this clear, this profound, this radical. The good news that it's what he has done for us, that what he wants to do isn't to change us on the outside, hoping that somehow that'll have a, a positive effect on the inside, but what he wants to do is work in us and change us from within. We can stop trying to follow the rules and instead all we need to do is to receive what he has done for us and that has the power to change lives and deliver us from this evil age. Well, as Paul is emphasizing all of this, we come to verse 13 here in Galatians chapter 1 that we'll be looking at this week and Paul begins to share his own personal testimony of what God did through him and as we see Paul's story we see some interesting and powerful truths that really are presented not just to say, look what God did for me, but what Paul is saying more than that is there isn't any other way to explain what's happened in my life. I was the least likely person to be telling people, you don't have to be under the law. I was the least likely person to be ministering to the church. I was persecuting the church. Paul said this man Paul a fascinating character his name used to be Saul that was his birth name born in Tarsus Saul was probably named after King Saul they had some things definitely in common some profound differences as well Saul was the first king of Israel he was the man that if people were going to elect a leader they would have picked him head and shoulders above everyone else Unlike him, Saul of Tarsus was a little short guy. But both of them from the tribe of Benjamin. And King Saul, someone that they always looked to, especially Benjamites looked to, as being, yeah, look at him. He was a great ruler, a great leader, a great warrior. Oh, they kind of forgot a lot of his failures. But so here's this Jewish boy, Saul, who's growing up as a Benjamite. And he ended up becoming very advanced in Judaism. He was so religious that in Philippians 3, he tells us that as far as the law was concerned, he was blameless. But in those days, to be a good Jew, one of the things that meant is that he was out there trying to wipe out Christians, trying to destroy the church. And just for a little background, turn over to Acts chapter 9, we see when Saul was converted and later named Paul. Actually, back in Acts chapter 7, Stephen was stoned. And we are told in Acts chapter 7 that there was a young guy, Saul, who was there, they were casting their clothes, their garments, their coats at his feet, signifying that he was sort of overseeing the first martyr in the church, the stoning of Stephen. And in chapter 8 of Acts, it begins by saying Saul was consenting to his death. And then in verse 3 of chapter 8, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And then over in chapter 9, something happens that changed all that. It said in Acts chapter 9 and verse 1, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. Damascus was the capital of, still is the capital of Syria, up north of Israel. So he wanted to go up there and clean house so that if he found any who were of the way or who were Christians, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem so they could be tried and killed. But as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads, or it's hard for you to resist what I'm doing. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. As you read on, you'll see that God came to a man named Ananias there in Damascus and told Ananias, there's a guy named Saul who I've given him a vision that a guy named Ananias is going to pray for him and he'll receive his sight. So go, you know, I'm going to send him, and you're going to get together. So God brought Saul to Ananias. Ananias prayed for him. He received his sight. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, and thus began one of the most powerful ministries in the history of the church as he began to immediately share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he, we also see Paul's account of this This is Luke's uh, recounting of it, but Paul in Acts chapter 26 tells the whole story again before Agrippa and Festus, and he shares all of what happened and how after that it says that he was convincing people that Jesus really was the Messiah. To put together a history of Paul, if if you read Acts chapter 9 all the way through, then if you go to Acts chapter 26 and read that, Reading the little bit that we have here in Galatians chapter 1 and you pick up some other things in Philippians chapter 3, you get the image of this guy who ended up writing, I believe, 14 books of the New Testament, planting churches that are still alive today. An amazing guy with amazing set of accomplishments. But he's a man who, though having it all, as a leader of the Jews, probably a member of the Sanhedrin, because he, as he tells Agrippa there in Acts twenty-six, that he cast his vote in order to kill Stephen, and so, or you know, one of the martyrs, and so, as a member of the Sanhedrin, he'd have to do that. He was also a member of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a group of Jews who were very, very righteous. They separated themselves. They caused themselves to become sort of the elite followers of the law. They had a lot of run-ins with Jesus because he came to show people that they needed help and Pharisees didn't really think they needed help, but Paul was one of those. And he tells us in Philippians chapter 3, as far as the law was concerned, I was blameless. A Hebrew of the Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin. So now here in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 13, with that as a context, we read... For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure. I was so obsessed with persecuting the church. That word beyond measure there is the Greek word hyperbole. We use that in, the, in English grammar to refer to something that's exaggerated, uh, hyperbole. He was saying, I was hyper persecuting the church i was really into it beyond measure and i tried to destroy it the word there means to trash it i was just trying to completely wipe it out and obliterate it and i advanced in judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation being more exceedingly zealous you couldn't say it stronger more exceedingly zealous they had zealots people who were really into the law But he said, I was way, way, way beyond that, more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my father. So here you have a man, Paul, who if anyone was going to promote the law, it would be Paul or Saul in those days. And what he's developing here is the idea, again, going back to saying Christianity didn't come out of men. Now, there are people today who would argue that Christianity wasn't created by Jesus Christ. It was actually created by Paul. Well, Paul would have none of that, and that's why he was saying, if I change the rules, let me be accursed. This isn't from men. This isn't even according to men. And as exhibit A, he says, look who I was before I became a Christian. When you think about it, He had everything to lose by becoming a Christian. He was the least likely person. Now, here these Galatians are Gentiles, hadn't been around Judaism a whole lot, knew something about it, and so here are these Judaizers coming in and saying, you guys need to become more Jewish, but here is the Hebrew of the Hebrews, the one who the law didn't show him anything because he considered himself to be blameless before the law, And he is saying, look, these guys who are telling you to follow the rules, I followed them better than any of them. And I'm here to tell you that's not where it's at. That's not what you need to do. It's one thing for a really unrighteous person to tell you, oh, you don't need to follow the rules. But it's another thing for someone who had achieved so much to say, no, that is not where it's at. What could possibly be motivating Paul who had reached the the top for what he could do with his life, for all that he was trained for? Here, he was one of the leaders. He had the best education you could get at the feet of Gamaliel, who was the grandson of Hillel, probably the greatest Jewish rabbi ever. He had it all. So why in the world would he say, never mind, that doesn't matter? What in the world could could compel someone to denounce everything that was worth something to them. And as Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, to count it as dung compared to knowing Christ. It's so unlikely. Now you go, well, I can see why someone would start a new religion. I mean, it's very profitable, I think of L. Ron Hubbard, the science fiction writer who said, One of the greatest scams in the world would be to start your own religion. And then he did. And he created this organization called Scientology. They can't decide if they're really a religion or not. But all I know is Tom Cruise and John Travolta and all these people are putting a whole lot of money into this thing. And until his death, The leader of that group, L. Ron Hubbard, lived a very successful life, whereas before he was just a two-bit writer, hadn't published anything that anyone cared about. Then he wrote Dianetics and made up his own religion, and he cashed in on it. But remember, that's not the situation with Paul. Paul had it made, and for him to become a Christian meant he gave up everything and he lived a life of, of disgrace and persecution where he was stoned, where he was beaten, where in every way it was complete sacrifice. His, his relatives don't get royalties from the books he wrote of the Bible. It just, there was nothing. He had nothing to gain and everything to lose. There's a thing that happens to us in life where once we work really hard to attain something or to achieve it we never want to discount it because we already paid the price to get there you know I I could tell you that boy all the years I went to college and seminary the truth is it didn't really help me all that much but see if I said that I paid all that money I spent all that time and effort and it just causes it to be a waste so I need to pretend like, boy, it was just, there was nothing like it. I learned so much. I, you know, you'll never be as wise as I will be unless you go to seminary because that's just who I am. And it's hard to say, I just did this and it doesn't mean much. It's empty. It leaves you cold. I don't know how true these stories are, but you hear them all the time. And I'm sure it couldn't be on the internet if it's not true. But these, <laughs> these stories about... The fact that every time someone comes up with a great idea for a very efficient alternative to the internal combustion engine that doesn't pollute, that gets a million miles an hour and everything, they say that if there's an idea like that, the automobile companies buy those ideas up and then hide them. Oh, they say that if somebody comes up with a more efficient fuel, that the oil companies buy those patents and, and buy up those inventions and... and and they submerge them. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but recently I saw something that I know is true. They've scientifically been able to create an artificial diamond that is indiscernible from regular diamonds. Now, as far as I'm concerned, a cubic zirconium is good enough, but (laughs) this goes way beyond that. And these diamonds are so a jeweler, the finest jeweler cannot look at it with a loop and tell that it's not a diamond. So guess who buys it? The diamond companies. And there's a machine that costs like $100,000 or something like that that's the only machine that can discern the difference between one of these artificial diamonds and a real diamond. There's only one factor that's slightly off that causes them to be able to determine the difference. And so the diamond company, De Beers and others, buy those machines so that no one can even tell the difference and they maintain control. Why do they do that? Because they have put billions of dollars and many, many years into convincing people that that little crushed piece of coal that shines and sparkles is a girl's best friend. (laughs) It's something that... You need to invest in, and it's very valuable. So what happens to them if we find out that, hey, a machine can make it easily. It doesn't take millions of years. Well, it's up. It's over. Their little scam is broken, and so they have to control it. And so an alternative technology comes up, and they go, hey, we can't let that get out to the masses. And so they have a big campaign to try to convince you that these aren't as good as diamonds, But for some reason, they want to own them at the same time and control them. And what's going on there? It's looking out for your own self-interest. It's saying, look, I've worked hard to attain what I have, and I don't want somebody to come along and take it away. And that is how legalism is propagated. And that is what the natural thing for Paul would have been, for him to go... You need to be a Hebrew of the Hebrews. You need to be blameless before the law. You need to be more like me. But something happened to him that though he's the most unlikely candidate to become a Christian, he was persecuting the church. He was trying to trash the church. And now he's leading. He's introducing people to the gospel. This man who followed all the rules is now saying you don't have to follow the rules. It's crazy. How does that happen? Verse 15 starts out, but. Verses, verses 13 and 14, Paul says, look, here's who I was. Here's the story. Here's who I am. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. He says, something happened. That but, that change, that twist of the story that happened on the Damascus Road wiped out everything that was going on before. Meeting Jesus Christ, hearing his voice, seeing him changed everything miraculously for him. And now he took everything that he had worked for and he said, I consider it dumb compared to knowing him. I like the way here in verse 15 that he describes his conversion. He says, it pleased God, something that God wanted to do, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. He separated me. Aphorizo is the, is the Greek word there. And it's a word that means, it's interesting, the same word is where the word Pharisee comes from. It's a word that means to, divi- to mark something out like a border, The horizo part of it is where we get our word horizon. And it means to draw a line that separates something from someone else. To put down a border. Now the Pharisees did that to themselves and that's why they were called Pharisees. Because they drew a line in the sand and said, we are going to be different. We're not going to be like you. We will put a border around ourselves to protect ourselves from the unclean masses. But Paul uses a play on words here, and he says, What happened is, because it pleased God, he drew a line around me. He picked me, he chose me. He's the one who separated me. He did this work. And it was from my mother's womb, and he called me through his grace. The work of God in saving a person. He said, Before I was even born, God said, I see you, and I'm pleased to choose you, and I'm going to draw a circle around you. Paul didn't know it when he was a baby. He didn't even know it as he was living his life and trying to follow the law. But the day came when he met Jesus and he realized, you know what? There's been a cone around me all along. There was a choice that happened before I was even born whereby God chose me. Now this gets into heady stuff. This gets into very complicated things. When we talk about God choosing us, Paul over in Ephesians chapter 1 said that this choice happened before the foundation of the world, not just back before I was born, but before the world even began. Paul talks about this a lot in Romans 8. Peter talks about it in 1 Peter chapter 1. God choosing people to be saved. Now, this has also divided churches and Christians for generation after generation because we see this and we go, wait a minute, how does this work? And there are two schools of thought, Calvinism and Arminianism, that are primarily defined by how we understand this concept. There's more to it than that, but that's a simplistic way of saying this is what happens. And for a lot of us, we tend to want to make it make sense to us, and so we water down what the Bible says. And even to the point where what we say is, and by the way, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and in Romans 8, it talks about God's foreknowledge being connected with his choice and his predestination. And so we say, oh, I get it. We go, God knew that we were going to choose him, and so on the basis of that knowledge, he chose us. And that's very comfortable. But it doesn't make sense. If God's choice of me was contingent on my choice of him, then what's the big deal that he chose me? And how could it be said that it happened before the foundation of the world if it was contingent on what I would do in my lifetime? To me, if God only chose me because I chose him, that's not a great comfort. It's very understandable, just as understandable as, as saying that if he chose me, then I guess I didn't have a say in the matter. That makes sense too. If God just chose us and we had nothing to do with it, no responsibility, no our response means nothing. And the fact is that when he offers whosoever will, it doesn't really mean whosoever. It means just the people who are chosen. That is perfectly consistent and makes sense as well. But the problem is, I don't believe that without watering down some scriptures, we can ever get to the point where we go, oh, I get it. And every time I start to get it, I realize that I'm watering down one scripture in order to accept another. And that's the danger of trying to understand something that, at least my brain, I don't believe is, is capable of comprehending. In my life, I suppose, I've, hey, there were definitely times when I was a staunch Calvinist. And there were probably other times when I was very close to being an Arminian. And to this day, my best friends, my good friends who are Armenians, accuse me of being a Calvinist. And my dear Calvinist friends accuse me of being Arminian. And I, I like to think it's because I'm right in the middle. It, it might be because I'm both. Maybe they're both right. Maybe I am a Calvinist and an Arminian. But here's the thing. Just because I don't understand it, just because I'm going to say, I don't, get this completely i'm not going to water down any part of scripture in order to come to a peace with some other part of scripture and I, if his choice wasn't something that's a big deal the bible wouldn't say it and if his choice was only because of what i do it's not a big deal of course he chose me he kind of had to he just followed my cue I believe that his choice is so much more than that, and that's why the Scripture refers to it again and again. So if you want, you can try to figure it out. If you want, I'll give you a lot of good books that can confuse you. But what you need to understand is what Paul understood right off the bat. I don't get it, but he looked at me, and he drew a circle around me, and he picked me. He chose me. He called me according to his grace, and I'm saved. And I've come into this awareness of grace that as I understand that he loves me and that he accepts me, as I accept that caress of his love and his grace, that unconditional acceptance, I accept the fact that he took care of my sins completely. Boy, there's this wonderful peace that settles in. The pressure is off. Like Paul, boy, if you're good, you kind of don't like caring about this. But when you see him, when you hear his voice on your Damascus Road, something happens that changes everything. It's so radical that you will take everything that you had and say, you know what, I don't care what I invested in. I don't care how much energy I put into this, how much I achieved my level of success. I just realized I'm in his sights. A light shines forth from heaven and he deals with me. And he says, when you were picking on these people, you were picking on me. And what I want you to understand is, that's not how it works. It's not what you do, it's what I've done. And that changed Paul's life forever. How he described it ultimately is, as he said there in the beginning of verse 16, to reveal his son in me. That word for reveal is apocalypse. It's it's a word that means a glorious unveiling of something. We look forward to the appearance of Jesus Christ, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. It's the same word that's the title of the book of Revelation as it looks toward in things. But Paul said, hey, at that point, when I understood that he had chosen me, when I understood that I met him and that I could know him, there was this apocalypse of him in me. He began to change me. And that's a wonderful description of Christianity. God comes to you. You receive him. He's called you long before you ever realized it. And he places his Holy Spirit inside you. And as he works that work in your life, He begins, it begins to develop that Jesus is revealed. There's an apocalypse, a revelation, radical revealing of truth that happens and it happens in you. And people start to see you and they can see him. And you even look at yourself and you remember what you were before he found you and you go, wow, this is wild. I can't believe how much God has done in my life. And for Paul, that testimony of grace was everything he traded everything else that he had away just for that revelation and he spent the rest of his life letting Jesus grow inside of him letting him be more and more revealed in him so that he could say be imitators of me as I am of Christ but Paul made it clear it's not something I did I used to do no now it's it's grace it's something that's done because God is doing it within me and that's your story as well as mine. Think about who you were before the Lord got a hold of you. You, Many of you were as unlikely as Paul to be candidates, to be walking with God, to be spending Sunday morning instead of sleeping off a hangover, sitting in church, singing praises to God, studying His Word. Think about where you were Think about who you were and what God had to do to get you, to get all of us to this point. And for some of us, it's shocking. Oh, there are some people who have just been really good, their lives, they can't remember when they didn't love God, and it's been great all along. I praise God for you. That's what I would wish for any young person is to go through that. But, you know, many of us have deep, dark secrets, things we've never even told anyone about. (laughs) I remember when I first took over as the principal of the school at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. And there was a girl that I knew from when we were kids. Her brother and I used to blow things up together. And her kids were in our school there at Maranatha. And she told me, she came and talked to me a few days later, and she said, so what happened to you? She said, my kids came home from school. And I said, your principal is who? I couldn't believe it. And that's the shock that so many of us should propagate when people go, what? You? And and I think sometimes we think we need to hide who we used to be. You know, get the tattoos removed and clean up the history and don't tell anybody anything because I don't want people to know who I used to be. And when we do that, all we do is destroy the testimony of God's grace where we can share, look, here's who I was. It was very unlikely That I would accept Jesus Christ but he miraculously appeared for Paul all those years studying Judaism it was something that was in his head he knew all the stuff but he had never heard the voice of God and he had never had God inside him and when that happened it changed everything maybe some of you have been very religious your whole lives And you've had it all up in your head, but nothing has ever surprised you about God. You just have all the answers, and you know, and you're very comfortable with it. And I feel bad for you, because it's real hard to go from being religious to where you enter into a relationship with God. All that righteousness of yours means nothing. It's as filthy rags compared to meeting God personally and knowing him personally. Now, some of you, this is hard to relate to because you go, oh, that was never really that bad. For you, I want you to think of what could have happened to your life, what you could have become if you had just made a couple of bad decisions somewhere along the road, a couple of differences, how fouled up your life could have been, those things that you thought of in your head that you never shared with anyone, and yet, what if you had gone for it? Where would you be? For every one of us, we are trophies of God's grace. If we've come to know him, it's so unlikely. Nobody could have predicted it. No one could have thought that this is how we would turn out. There are some people who start really well. They completely follow their lives up. That too is a miracle. It's miraculous how low some people will sink who had a great start in life. But whatever the case... God wants to be in a relationship with you and it's dependent only on His grace, only on what He has done. The good news is you don't have to be good. The good news is it's not depending on what you do to achieve anything with God. The good news is He'll do it for you. He'll clothe you in the righteousness of His Son. He will reveal His Son in you and when people see you, they'll start to see Him. Because of this unlikely change that happens by the grace of God. And that is great news. To live your life any other way is foolish. I read last week about a, well, the show um, Everybody Loves Raymond with Ray Romano, big hit TV show up in the top five for the last seven years, and they they quit making it finally. The last show, Ray Romano came out with the studio audience, and it was an emotional time, and they said that as he talked and they were asking him questions, someone said, so, seven years of this kind of success, what do you do now? And he said, seven years ago, I left New York City, and I packed my bags, and I moved to Hollywood to seek my fortune. And he said, when I got to Hollywood, I opened my bag, and my brother had put a note in there, And the note said, Ray, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And he said, so now I'm going to look for my soul. I pray that he'll find it. I pray that his brother will be able to share with him, that God will do other things because the truth is it doesn't matter what kind of worldly success you have. At the end of it, there's going to be this emptiness, And as Ray Romano stood there before that audience, tears pouring down his face talking about this, there are some of you who maybe right now there are tears inside because you realize everything you've worked for doesn't satisfy. hasn't clicked. It's not working. I have good news for you. God wants to turn things around. And no matter how much you've fouled your life up or no matter how much you've chased the wrong golden ring, Whatever it is that you've tried to do to fulfill your life, it's a lot simpler than you think. It comes down to the gospel. Good news. Trade away the junk that you've been valuing and instead receive the work of God. The weight should be lifted off of you. Well, what rules do we follow? You don't follow any rules. Well, what do I need to change? What do I need to become? How do I adjust my life? For once, just stop trying and let God do what he does in your life. And when you hear from him, when that light shines on you, you'll never be the same. And he will begin a work in you whereby just from within, God gives you something that you could never get for yourself, that you could never earn for yourself. Your testimony is not that much different than Paul's. Because every one of us are so unlikely to buy into something so beautiful. We haven't earned it. We tried, we failed. But the good news is, it's what he has done. That's what matters. That's the gospel. And that's Paul's testimony of grace and and that's yours as well. Don't forget it. Let's pray. Lord, how grateful we are for the simple truth of your gospel. If it was all about being righteous, following the rules, there are some people here today, Lord, who are pretty good at that. They're actually just pretty good people. They haven't got caught up in all kinds of horrible sins. And yet, even in all of their holiness, there's been something missing they don't realize that through trying to be good people, they've ended up destroying who you want to be in their lives and who you are. God, there are other people here today who they don't think there's any hope. There's no way their life could turn into something valuable because they've messed it up so bad. In either case, Lord, I pray that you will shine on them, that you'll appear to them, that you'll let them know, hey, good news. It's not about you. Lord, there are many of us who have walked with you for years. And somehow along the line, our relationship has become a religion. We're looking down at people who aren't as good as we are. And we're believing somehow that our relationship with you is contingent on whether or not we follow the rules. Lord, lift that burden from our hearts. And help us to once again, just basking in the light of your presence, respond to what you have done for us with grace. Lord, you're so good. And you have blessed us beyond anything that we could do. Help us to never get past the gospel, but allow our lives to be testimonies of only your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. If you're...